Three score and three years ago, our forefathers witnessed the third worst pandemic of the 20th century. A virus swept out of Asia to envelop India, Western Europe, Great Britain, and the United States, and indeed the rest of the world. Somewhere between 1 million and 4 million people are said to have died. In the United States, the death rate from what was called Asian flu was 100,000 out of 170 million, or better than 0.5%, five times the fatality rate for your typical influenza. And unless the number of U.S. deaths from COVID reached 200,000, and we're still a ways away from that, it will not outrank the fatality rate for the Asian flu in the United States. Even worse, that virus, unlike COVID, attacked children and young people as well as the elderly. Yet, schools in the United States trundled along as if nothing was happening. The Asian flu struck when I was beginning my senior year in high school, and we enjoyed that year enormously. Senior prom, weekend parties, commencement, movie dates at the drive-in theater, mass teenage gatherings on the lakefront, and much more. Today's seniors are locked down. Why the difference? Well, to discuss these questions, I have with me today the eminent economic historian, Neil Ferguson, author of The Ascent of Money, Henry Kissinger, The Idealist, and so many other significant works. Neil Ferguson is currently a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and his current research is on disaster. So thank you, Neil, for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's a pleasure, Paul. Well, Neil, when I went to school in the middle of the Asian flu, no one paid any attention. We larked about without any notion that we were, um, you know, offending the gods. So what happened? Where was the breakdown in public health and public officials? Why didn't they take this pandemic seriously? Well, it's a fascinating study in contrasts, Paul, because as you just suggested in your introduction, the uh, the so-called Asian flu, you, you could call it that in those days without causing a great controversy, which originated in China, was first noticed in Hong Kong, was a, a, a strain of influenza H2N2 uh, to which very few people had resistance. And it swept around the world uh, pretty rapidly in the course of 1957. Uh, we have uh, a variety of different estimates of of how many people it killed. And as so often, these statistics are, are a little tricky because uh, different authors use different metrics. Some go for a sort of absolute number attributable to the disease, others for excess mortality. But it, it looks as if uh, more than a million people died worldwide, but maybe at the least 700,000, at the most 1.5 million. Uh, and in the US, uh, CDC uh, gives a, a total death number of 115,700. There are some papers that put it lower than that. Uh, and and it must be said that there there's a there's a complex literature which i i'm still working my way through dating back to the the, the 60s on what happened but it's it's pretty clear as you said that this was a pandemic comparable in magnitude to what we are experiencing with with covid-19 uh, for example if you take the cdc number 
for uh, mortality due to H2N2 1957 58, and then adjust for the increase in populations since then, uh, you would arrive at a, a death toll of 215,000. And the US is about halfway there in terms of mortality due to COVID 19. I think the key point to make to, to listeners is our experience of COVID-19 is closer from an epidemiological point of view to 1957-58 than to 1918-19, which was a much worse influenza pandemic that killed a lot more people. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at the estimates for mortality in 1918-19 in the United States, it was 600, 675,000. I mean, you're talking in terms of contemporary population of of somewhere around 2 million people. So I think 1957-58 is interesting, partly because my sense is that we're having an experience closer to that in terms of mortality than, than to 1918-19. The difference that's really striking is the policy response, which is almost the exact opposite of what we see today. In 1957-58, there were no economic lockdowns. There weren't even school closures. The federal government essentially went for a business as usual approach, and so did state governments. And the focus of public policy was uh, laser-like on finding a vaccine. That is what they did. They did it uh, really as the only priority of policy, and they did it spectacularly rapidly, so that in just a few months, uh, they, they, they came up with a vaccine and were able to start inoculating people. Yeah, but wasn't that just sort of a little bit of a luck story that they, they happened? I, I, I heard your presentation the other day to a small group of people. And one of the things that I felt was so fascinating was your story about the fellow from Montana, which I think is where you're sitting today. Uh, wasn't that a little bit of a, a stroke of, of, of good luck? Well, I don't know that it was luck, because in many ways, the world of 1957 science and public health policy was a different world in, in a couple of ways. It was smaller in terms of the number of people employed to work on these issues. Uh, CDC was a relatively new organization at that time. And, uh, and Morris Hillman, who's the hero of the story, was a kind of hard-driving, no-prisoners-taken scientist who one senses would have got in trouble with uh, at least one or two faculty disciplinary committees uh, had he lived in our generation. Uh, Hillman, uh, it's worth saying a little bit about his personality, was indeed from Montana. And uh, that was one of the things that got me interested in this story because for reasons I don't need to go into, I am spending the pandemic in Montana rather than at, at Stanford in plague-ridden California. Hillman was, uh, Hillman was uh, a, a Montana guy who was working at what we now call Walter Reed when he saw in a newspaper the first report of a new... Uh, outbreak of an unidentified disease in in Hong Kong. I think he may have seen this in the New York Times, and uh, and Hillman, who was uh, one of the world's great uh, uh, vaccine uh, 
finders, probably uh, responsible for more vaccines in his career than any other human being. Hillman saw this immediately it inferred from the report, which referred to glassy-eyed children, that it was a new strain of influenza, and went into overdrive, got samples, uh, and started work on a vaccine, pulling kind of 16-hour days, uh, simultaneously sending samples to the six big companies in the United States that were capable of producing a vaccine, including Merck. And uh, they were astoundingly quick in getting from the initial identification of the, the new strain of influenza to a vaccine. But isn't that happening now? I mean, didn't, didn't the uh, scientists move pretty quickly, both in China and in the United States, to, to search for a vaccine from the earliest days of uh, COVID? Of course, and there's a, an enormous number, I think at least 120 different vaccine research projects underway to try to find a vaccine against COVID-19. Uh, but we're now uh, in, in June, and we've uh, known that there was this new pathogen since January. Well, Morris Hillman got his first sample of the influenza virus on May 13th, 1957. Uh, by August, uh, that is to say, just a few months later, four million doses of the, the vaccine were available by September, nine million. So we would have that nine million in place if we were at that same rate as of today, or even well, as of... of course, there's, a, there's a difference of, of the obvious variety, namely that, that we're dealing with a novel coronavirus and he was dealing with a, an influenza virus. Uh, so there's an obvious difference there, which we shouldn't omit. But what's really striking to me when I read the history of 1957 is just the breakneck speed with which they moved. We are, of course, um, for a variety of regulatory reasons, proceeding more slowly. And it's clear that even if the front runners, Moderna in, in Massachusetts or, or the Oxford uh, team, even if they have a breakthrough, let's say September, October time, when I think they, they hope to have completed phase three trials, we're not going to have 4 million doses in 2020. Uh, I think I can say that with some confidence. It will take until next year for there to be widespread availability for this vaccine. So the first takeaway from the 1957 story is that they really did move fast then, and you, you might well say, oh, but what terrible risks were being taken? And at that time, sometimes things went wrong. There was a, a disaster with a polio vaccine uh, that, that, uh, that you may even uh, have heard of. But, but oh, I do remember that as a child, because one of the things that we were concerned when I was a young person was that we would get polio. My mom wouldn't let me go to the movies. She didn't like it my going to movies anyhow. So she made up this good excuse. You can't go to the movies, you might get polio. And so it, there, it wasn't like people were unaware of the dangers of infectious diseases, Correct. but they just think that this was something to obsess about. Well, I think that's the second big difference that, that strikes me when I, when I study this history, the very different attitude, not only of of the government and of public health uh, officials, uh, but also the different attitude of, of ordinary Americans. 
I think it was partly, as you've just suggested, that people were familiar with contagious diseases as a feature of life. And polio was the one that people feared the most because of the terrible effects that it could have. Uh, I'm old enough, I'm 56, to remember that uh, growing up in Glasgow in the west of Scotland, there were little dolls, effigies of children stricken with polio with their legs in braces, uh, holding collection tins uh, so that we could contribute coins for research into, into polio. And that was the 1970s. The 1950s was a time when everybody had some first, second, or third-hand familiarity with a a nasty, uh, potentially lethal, contagious disease. And influenza had, uh, of course, uh, swept through the world in in 1918-19. So your your grandparents would have some recollection of of that likely i i yes. do think attitudes were yeah different. one of my one of my mother's brothers died as a as an infant and it it could have been actually at at that exact time i'm not exactly sure when that death was but it could have been due to the uh spanish flu and 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 as far as polio is concerned we had the prominent example of agnes the wonderful alto in our church choir who you know, walked with crutches up and down the streets of the town. So we had these visible reminders all the time that disease was a part of our life. Exactly. And tuberculosis, uh, for which there was no uh, effective vaccine, there still isn't a reliable vaccine against TB. Tuberculosis was a, was a disease that was, uh, was still in memory, if not in in life, my grandfather suffered from it, uh, having having had a really rough time in in Burma during World War II. So the, the the next piece of the story is the World War II generation had seen excess mortality. All right, uh, they'd seen it in in war, and I think it's worth remembering that the president of the United States in 1957 was Dwight Eisenhower, uh, someone who's uh, uh, life experience in the military had been, of course, shaped by uh, excess mortality. Eisenhower had been a young officer during the 1918-19 pandemic, and one of the reasons he got promoted was that he was seen to have handled it very well uh, in the, 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 the camp he happened to be in command of. So this generation, including the President of the United States, had first-hand experience of excess mortality of the worst kind in warfare, Excess mortality in warfare is very bad because it claims young men predominantly. But they yeah, also but maybe, maybe they were just maybe they were just Republicans. You know, we didn't have Medicare, we didn't have Medicaid. The Democrats were trying to uh, extend the healthcare system. Republicans were saying we didn't want socialism in the United States. We didn't want the British Health Service. Nothing like that in the United States. So maybe they deliberately played this down because of, of the, their political. Uh, 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 point of view. If that were true, Paul, it would have been an issue in the midterm elections in 1958, and it really wasn't. In fact, it's hard to find uh, any real reference to the uh, influenza in the politics of the period. Uh, So I don't think it was, unless I've missed something, 
in my reading. I don't think it was a politicized issue the way COVID-19 has become politicized. I mean, there are two different realities about, about this pandemic today, depending on whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. That wasn't true then. I think there was a consensus that the right thing to do was to keep the show on the road, including keeping the schools open, and that the most important priority of policy should be a vaccine. And interestingly, if you just view this from for a moment as an economist, the most astonishing thing that, that you notice is that when Eisenhower asked Congress for uh, some uh, money, um, that the amount he asked for was by the standards of 2020, uh, not just chump change, but whatever's smaller than chump change, $2.5 million, uh, primarily to support research into a vaccine. Bearing in mind the vast amounts of money in the trillions uh, that are currently being uh, spent by Congress uh, to offset the effects of economic lockdowns, 1957 is like a parallel universe. That, that this is a trivial amount of money relative to US GDP uh, with, uh, with, with the obvious implication that the economic consequences of 1957-58 were almost non-existent. There was well, a mild did we have recession. a recession? As I recall, yeah. Uh, yeah. there was a recession in 1958, or was it 57? Somewhere about that time, uh, there was a downturn in the economy that actually Democrats in that 58 election. There was a recession in 1957-58, a short one from memory, about nine months in duration. It had nothing to do with the pandemic whatsoever because it started before the virus arrived in the United States. It was a function of uh, rising interest rates and, uh, and maybe uh, some defense cuts uh, uh, that, that also had happened. The, the, the literature on this in economic history makes no mention of the, the pandemic as a, as a factor. Uh, the Federal Reserve's review of the recession uh, published in August 1958 doesn't even refer to it. So yeah, there was this, there was this minor recession, but uh, it had nothing to do with the pandemic. And, and that's, I think, another really extraordinary contrast, isn't it? Because in our time, we've created one of the deepest recessions in American history, a decline in output and a jump in unemployment not seen since the early 1930s, a kind of high-speed depression. And we've done this through lockdowns and other measures that, that we, we decided to adopt uh, in response to COVID-19. Again, I think the fascinating thing in looking at 1957-58 is that you encounter this complete parallel universe. It's another America. They, they respond in almost the opposite way to the crisis. Well, so Neil, uh, you've touched on this, but let me just ask it directly. Do you think that the whole public health uh, establishment, that should I say, or the, the community of uh, public health is much more prominent, much more powerful, much more a part of the uh, world landscape today than it was three score and three years ago? It's certainly bigger. The, the, the bureaucracy at the Department of Health and Human Services, including CDC, is significantly larger, and the budgets in relative terms are significantly larger than they were then. And that raises the question, if that's the case, why has the performance been so poor? Here I want to make a different comparison, which is with other countries that handled COVID-19 
at much lower cost, Taiwan or South Korea, or even to take a European example, Germany, where the impact of COVID-19 has been much, much less in terms of uh, infections, mortality, and economic uh, economic downturn. Yes, and I'm I, curious what you're, you can say about that, because every time I look at the data, I look at France, I look at Italy, Spain, uh, Britain, and uh, Belgium, and, and then I look at Germany, it's, it's, it's entirely different. Why the difference between these countries that you all think of in the same breath? I think the answer to that question, Paul, is that to understand a, a pandemic or a, any kind of contagion, you have to understand not only the properties of the pathogen, you also have to understand the social network that it's attacking. And there are big differences in the social networks of, say, northern Italy and, and, and Germany, or for that matter, Scandinavia. Uh, there's also uh, the fact that the correct response to to a novel coronavirus was the very early action that was taken in uh, places like Taiwan uh, and South Korea and Germany. Testing and then contact tracing are the two key policy measures that are really effective against a virus which is often spread by so-called super spreaders and a virus which is, uh, which is a, really quite different in its its impact on different age groups. And what these countries got right was that as soon as they heard that there was something up in Wuhan, they started increasing testing. And, and when they found people testing positive, they, they did contact tracing and they, they prevented multiple super spreader events occurring. We didn't do that. In the US, what happened, and it requires, I think, considerable further investigation. But what happened was that in January and in February, and for the first two weeks of March, nothing much was done. Uh, the, the communications were broadly bipartisan, that this was just the, the, the flu and no big deal. And CDC, far from ramping up testing, actually seems to have prevented testing from being ramped up. There was no contact tracing when people, or very little, it happened in Washington, but it didn't happen much elsewhere. And so in the United States for weeks, uh, there was this rapid spread of the, the virus, including spreading to vulnerable communities in, in elderly care homes. And this was a terrific failure of public health bureaucracy, I'm, I'm fairly sure. Uh, and, and certainly if Morris Hillman could come back from the dead and, and take a look at how we did, I think his first response would be, how could you be so slow? How could you be so incredibly slow in responding to this? Uh, and I, I think the question needs to be asked more often because unfortunately the media tend to focus everything on the president, everything on the personality of Donald Trump. Uh, and, and I understand why that happens because the president himself wants that. But in truth, in a pandemic, the key players are your public health officials, your, your, your bureaucrats whose job this is. And I think the real failure lies in, in DHHS uh, and at CDC, where compared with their peers in other countries, they, they perform badly. And it's going back to 1957, it's interesting to look at how very differently their counterparts behaved then. Uh, people were quick to realize that there was a pathogen on the way. As soon as they read about it in Hong Kong, they understood 
that it was likely to come swiftly to the United States. And remember, it traveled much more slowly in those days because viruses were mostly traveling by boat, not by, by plane. But they well, maybe understood. that was the difference. They could get the vaccine ready by the time the virus arrived, whereas this time I think the spreading was so fast that the only way you could deal with it was to lock down. The interesting thing to me is that despite the slower and much less interconnected transportation network of the 1950s, the H2N2 virus got to the United States pretty fast. Uh, it, and indeed, I keep puzzling over that because it feels as if it kind of went faster than the average speed of, uh, of a passenger ship. But it got to the US really soon after they first read about it, uh, I think from memory in, in amongst sailors. I want to add one important point while I think of it. This was a disease unlike COVID-19 that attacked the young as well as the old. You, you mentioned yes, it earlier, yeah, Paul, yeah. but it's a key yeah. point. Yeah. It, it, like most pandemics in history, uh, the Im impact was not only on the elderly, but it was also on the very young. And it was also uh, quite a significant uh, cause of illness and indeed mortality amongst teenagers. Now, this is, is worth thinking about. Uh, one, one reason that teenagers got it uh, in large numbers is something you were talking about earlier. This was the heyday of teenage social life in America. Uh, and the whole complex of, of, of summer camps and, and high schools uh, and all the, the different ways in which teenagers would hang out together. Uh, uh, and the Boy Scouts. Milkshakes and the, the Boy Scouts. The, the Boy Scouts have a jamboree? The, the July 1957 Valley Forge, Pennsylvania Boy Scouts of America Jamboree was probably one of the big super spreader events of the pandemic. Uh, thousands and thousands of, of teenage boys gathered together in uh, crowded uh, tents um, and then all going home, uh, many of them with the influenza. This made the, the pandemic of 1957-58 scarier, actually, than our pandemic, because as you know, COVID-19 uh, does not uh, attack children. There are hardly any cases in any of the countries where there are detailed statistics of, of children being killed by COVID-19. They, they can get the virus, they're mostly asymptomatic. Uh, but, but in 1957-58, teenagers were getting sick and although the, the mortality rate amongst teenagers was lower than for the under fives and the over 65s, uh, there were still people who got very sick. So I think we need to remind ourselves that this pandemic of 2020 is by historical standards, uh, an ageist pandemic. And from the vantage point of, of our own happiness as people, it would have been far worse if COVID-19 had attacked the under fives the way it attacks the over 65s. It would be far worse if teenagers were getting really sick. That, that's what we've been spared and what people in 1957-58 went through. Right, but maybe COVID is worse in other ways. I mean, when I tell people, you know, this isn't such a serious thing, especially for young children or for even young people in general, they say, yes, but there are these horrible side effects that people get from COVID. Is it something about COVID itself that has produced a different response? 
I don't think so, because the number of cases of children who get abnormal inflammation, um, this Kawasaki style or type syndrome is very small and uh, statistically almost undetectable. The, the number of, of really young children who become ill, uh, uh, seriously ill is very, very small everywhere. And so I think you have to make some allowance here for, for the role of the media. Remember, there are two pandemics going on at the moment. There's the real one involving a real virus. And then there's the pandemic online of disinformation and misinformation. And the, 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 the tendency of the media is always to jump on any story about, about young people getting sick. Um, when you then go into the scientific literature and you ask the question, well, how much is this happening? It turns out to be a really tiny amount so far. We, we don't know everything about this virus, let's be clear. It could turn out to have long lasting and negative effects on people who get it and recover. It's early days, uh, and so we shouldn't jump to conclusions. But I still think that if you compare the impact of, of COVID-19 on our population and the impact of H2N2 in 1957-58, the really striking difference is that H2N2 was, was killing kids. Uh, it was killing very young kids and it was making teenagers sick. And we're not dealing with any of that. Now, I'm a father of five. I know that my entire attitude to, to COVID-19 would be completely different if I was worried about, as, as worried about my younger children as I am about my mother who's in her 80s. Right now we can focus on the elderly and make sure that they are as far as possible protected from this virus and my kids are highly unlikely to get sick and that, that, that just seems to me like a huge difference and leaving aside the emotional piece when you think about the economic costs of a pandemic you lose a lot more quality adjusted life years if young people die than if old people die. That's just uh, a reality of, of how we should think about the impact of a pandemic. So no, I think even if you allow for the occasional uh, rare cases when children get sick or, or people in the prime of life have, have strokes because of abnormal clotting, this doesn't seem to be a large enough body of people to constitute uh, anything comparable with the with the way influenza in the 20th century would would sweep through populations and and attack uh, uh, younger age groups. Well, Asian flu went went away. Um, so why did it happen? When so little effort was made to social distance or mask or any of the other public health interventions that we are currently uh, mobilizing and uh, implementing, how did the Asian flu disappear? Well, fact number one, Paul, there were two waves. And this came as a surprise to, to some contemporaries, though it shouldn't have, because the 1918-19 influenza had also come in two or three waves. There was a second wave in January, February 1958, which took uh, the number of, of deaths up to very near its late 1957 peak. And after that, uh, there, there was significantly less uh, infection and, and mortality. Not that it completely went away. Uh, it just came down to that kind of baseline uh, uh, level of mortality uh, that you, you'd have expected from respiratory uh, conditions. Uh, and, and there's really a kind of period of uh, more normal variation around the seasonal 
uh, around the seasonal norm until a new strain of influenza came along in 1968, uh, the Hong Kong flu. Funny how these things tend to start uh, in East Asia, isn't it? So th that's the first, the first point. The second point is that by 1958, uh, Hillman's vaccine was, uh, was generally available. And in, in that sense, uh, they, they had a solution, uh, a vaccine that wasn't perfect. I want to make that point. It was not 100% effective. It was probably uh, not much more effective than 60%. But that was another reason why uh, the problem uh, began to abate. And then, of course, there's the herd immunity story that uh, despite Hillman's efforts, a lot of people did get H2N2 in the course of 1957-58 and the survivors had immunity to that strain of influenza thereafter. Um, I, I mean I think approximately 30% slightly less of Americans probably were infected. Uh, now that's a relatively low percentage if you think about how herd immunity is commonly defined. Uh, but if you add that plus vaccination I think you get to an answer for why there wasn't a third big wave. Well, thank you very much, uh, Neil, for joining me on the Education Exchange. This has been a fascinating uh, discussion. Paul, it's been my pleasure. Yeah, I've been speaking with Neil Ferguson, an economic historian and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And we have had this uh, amazing discussion of the complete uh, opposite response to an almost identical uh, epidemic situation today and not so far distant in the past. So thank you for joining us on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.